The rest of you, I'd like you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, if you would. 2 Corinthians 13. God's plan for a healthy church is study through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians as we picked up in chapter 12, verse 11, all the way through chapter 13, verse 14, marks of ministry, Paul's example. Last time we were together, we looked at our next section of this, into this letter. It's taken us a couple of years to get through these two letters. It's been a great study and has been very informative for us and helpful. And we got to this passage, it's very thorny, and I'd like you to look at it if you would. It's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves, Paul says, see, to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? After the military disaster and Confederate retreat at Gettysburg, General Robert E. Lee wrote this to Jefferson Davis. He said, quote, We must expect reverses, even defeats. They are sent to teach us wisdom and prudence, to call forth greater energies, and to prevent our falling into greater disasters, unquote. Of course, as we know uh, the whole picture there, we understand the disaster was the beginning of that whole effort. But I think it, it's analogous a little bit to where Paul is right now as he calls this question to the church. He's been dealing with some of the church who were rebellious. They resisted his teaching. They ignored his admonitions. Uh, when he was last there, they have mocked Paul, defamed him, gossiped about him, and they slandered him. And and all the while, masking their disinterest in his le leadership by asking for proof that he was the genuine apostle and that he was really giving them the word of God and not his own opinion. Of course, this whole thing was just a ruse. The signs of an apostle had been performed in front of them, which they well knew. But even more importantly, repentance and salvation and transformation and sanctification and the maturity of many in the church pointed again to his authenticity. But they had brought that up. They said uh, Paul had repeated what he had heard them say, which is you're looking for proof of who I am and the authority and the power that's in me. And perhaps uh, surprising to some in the church, he kind of turns the tables on them and he says at the end of verse 5, some of you might be, and we looked at this word before, adokimos. Dokimos is that word that applies to those in the early uh, first and second century who would qualify money, that it was the size it was supposed to be and the weight. But it's used often in the New Testament to talk about the sincerity and the truthfulness and, and um, the quality of believers. And it's used here uh, with awe as a negative particle. Some of you may take this test and find that you are representing something that you're not. That's basically how he comes across. You're not authentic believers and you'll fail. You're going to do an inventory. That's what he wants them to do. And it's possible to fail when you do an inventory. And perhaps they need to come to defeat to prevent greater disasters, disciplining, of course, from the Lord, chastening from the Lord, or even the greatest disaster of all, to pass into eternity without Christ. By its definition, in testing, it's possible to fail. And, and we saw last time that there are those in the church, uh, and some may be here this morning, and Jesus is not in them. That's a great, that's a great uh, sentence, isn't it? Jesus Christ is in you. It's a great truth. It's the reality of those who are born again. And this presence of Jesus Christ in you and in me produces obvious and apparent, distinct transformation called the new creation. And we didn't have time for this last time, but before we move on, I just want to look at a passage of Scripture briefly which captures that inventory for us. And this is so important and it's so relevant for today. As I read it in my office, I just felt so prompted I was just going to use it as for illustrative purposes, but I just really felt prompted that I should share it 
And part of exegetical teaching should always include the explanation and the application. So if you're just teaching the scripture so people know what it says, um, you're missing the most important parts, which is the explanation of that and the application. And sometimes when you do that, as I've told you before, you have to take in another section of scripture to get the full picture. And so like we did with repentance, where we paused on that briefly because it's such an important concept and not often talked about in the church, and, and recently disciplined so that you would understand that whole process as Paul talks about it, we're going to do it again with self-evaluation and a passage that captures this understanding very well. And it's found in the book of Hebrews. I'd like you to turn there if you would. I'm going to have some on the screen, but I think it's important if you take some time to be in your copy of God's Word. The book is obviously written to the church. We don't know who wrote it, but it's written to three groups, Jews who came to Messiah and are genuine believers, Jews who are convinced that Messiah is who he says he is, but haven't repented yet, and then Jews who are attached to Jesus and the gospel and the church, but haven't made a decision about whether they should follow. And it's important as you go through this letter to the church that you understand those three sections, otherwise you go through the book of Hebrews and you come away with wrong doctrine. People can lose their salvation and all of that, and you see that in the church often as people don't understand how this is written and why it's written. The problem was so prevalent early in the church that the Holy Spirit wanted to be sure that we understood it because it's still or maybe even more prevalent in the church now with the abundance of false teachers who we have in the world today. And it's easy to read the words just like it is repent. It's easy to read the and hear, test yourself and see if you're in the faith and just kind of nod your head and you move on to the next passage. And I believe that's not what Paul intends. I know that... Um, he wants his readers to do more than that, and I think in my mind, because of the things going on in the world, I believe we should be thinking very seriously about the soon return of Jesus, and that being said, I think it's important that we spend some time there, and all those reasons help us realize the real danger of not taking inventory, and certainly not taking an accurate inventory, and, and then realizing that you failed. If you don't take an accurate inventory, there's no way that you're going to realize that you don't pass. And so it's important, I think, that we do that. Some uh, of people in this church, this letter's addressed to, had come out of Judaism but not into Christ. So they're hanging around and they're part of the social entity of the church and they're there, but they're tares. They're not wheat. And it's hard to tell the difference. And so as Paul and Jesus spent a lot of time asking these questions, I think these warnings here are intensely relatable to people who out of the world and into the church, but not to Christ. Or you're a second or third or fourth generation. You may be sitting with your parents, or you may have come because of your spouse or whatever, and you've just always been in church. And so this idea then that uh, you're there perhaps, but not in Christ. You're in the church, but not in Christ. And the church is still full of those kinds of people. And this reality was the reason for Paul's directions to the Corinthian church to examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. And so, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, look there if you would, Paul starts, or the, the writer of Hebrews starts this way, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of, verse 2, instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, at first glance, you may think, isn't that a good thing to dwell on? I know this stuff. I mean, I know, you know, I know uh, this elementary teaching about Christ. I know that um, this basic stuff, that um, 
we have to repent and, and uh, get rid of the dead works towards uh, the flesh and faith towards God and all that. And, and many people can recite that pretty well. So my question is, is the inventory you're taking too simple? That by itself doesn't prove that you're in the faith. The fact that you understand those very basic things. You only know the simple stuff and not the mature stuff. You know the very basics after all this time. That's the question. But how about your life? Witnessing? Obedience? Application of biblical principles to filter your life? Are those there? See, that's, that's maturity. You're just knowing these basic things, that's not enough to pass the test. And many people say and perhaps think that they are. The Jews who were on the fringe, they were talking about repentance and dead works and faith and washing, laying on of hands, which they did with animal sacrifices, and simply believing in the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That's important, of course. But part of the basics, though, Paul says you've got to go beyond that. Come on, you've got to leave that behind and move on to the fullness of New Testament gospel. And that maturity is one of the purposes of sound doctrine and biblical teaching. Paul wanted to do that with the Corinthians, but he told them he couldn't yet. Remember last week as we looked at this just briefly? He said, I'd like to move beyond these basic things that people imagine perhaps mean that they're in the faith. I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. You weren't acting like mature believers. But as to men of flesh, that's indicative of being unredeemed. Or as to infants in Christ, shallow and immature. So I gave you milk to drink. That's that whole idea of, of Hebrews 6.1. I gave you milk to drink. You, not solid food. You weren't able to yet receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. You were that way, and you're still that way now. So the whole time you're dwelling on these simple things. You haven't moved past the simple things, but you think those simple things are indicative that you're in the faith. Since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? In other words, are you not unredeemed or are you not walking like mere men? So there's the question. So when Paul says, you know, I, I think we need to uh, examine ourselves, we get an idea of what that formula looks like by first saying, how complex are we? I mean, do we just know the basics after all this time? Does biblical instruction work its way into your life to filter your life? Or do you just kind of do what the world wants you to do? So, Take inventory. Are you still on the basics after all this time? Here are these things that are equated with being unredeemed or being infants when you're just on the basics. So the writer says then back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3, and this we will do, he says, if God permits. So it's the desire then of the teacher here as he's writing to the church to say, we want to move past this. And now here's the first warning. And and you're going to see that it's very dangerous to be in this fringe area. Verse 4 says this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, now stop right there, that means you understand what's expected. Okay, we're obviously speaking to those that are in the church but not in Christ. You understand the gospel. You understand that God came to the world in the form of Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem of a Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, rose three days later. You've got all those facts down. Those are just the basics, by the way. He ascended to heaven. He's going to someday come again. So you understand the gospel. You understand he died for our sins. You understand that. You've been enlightened. You may post that on your, on your social media. right? And then it says this, and tasted the heavenly gift. And the heavenly gift, of course, is the gift of God's Son. The immeasurable gift of Jesus Christ given to us. You've had a taste of that. That's the idea. What's that mean? Well, you sing the songs. You may get emotional because you can taste the flavor of the reality of Jesus in the songs from those true believers around you. You, you know it's powerful. And you've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit in, in the sense that you've seen the working of the Holy Spirit. 
you know people who've been changed. In the first century, it would be like the crowds that ate the food that Jesus created, like the crowds that watched the miracles that Jesus did by the power of the Spirit. You, you can see the Holy Spirit's at work. You've tasted, it says, verse 5, the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So the good word of God is you've heard it preached and it resonated with you. There may be a message that made you feel badly. You, you understood that it was powerful. You listened to the message and it made the difference in your life. And, and you've been exposed to its power. And, and maybe you've colored in some pages in your Bible even. But, wow, those are really great. You, you, you can do all that and not be born again, beloved. You're in, just like these who were in this church of old, you're in around the perimeter The powers of the age to come, that's just a glimpse of the true church worshiping and serving together. You may have people that top that list as examples to you. You marvel at their consistency. Jesus rules their life. They, they become this, this image of what you'd like to be like. You can see it's real in their life. You can see what they do. They're, they're committed. They're invested. They've got, uh, their life is in line with what the Scripture says, and they do these things because they love the Lord. And you can see Jesus rules their life. And it points to the kingdom where Jesus will physically rule on earth. They're already submitted to him now. They're doing what he says. And that just points to that future kingdom where Jesus will actually rule, and, and obedience and miracles and power will be commonplace during that time. And, and, and these first century friends, they actually had seen that for themselves. Jesus' miracles. They saw the disciples' dedication. They abandoned their life to follow him. They understood what that looked like. And, and later the apostles did the signs to verify the message and the messenger. And, uh, and these folks were exposed to that reality. They saw all of that. They knew this was the real deal. And no question that they think it's fake. It happened in their presence. Just like the faithfulness and the love and the selflessness has happened in your presence. You've seen this. Maybe you're on that, you're, you're, this, is, this is talking to you. So he says, you've seen all these things, you've heard it all, you've been informed by it all, you understand the gospel, you understand the power of Jesus, you understand the power of the Spirit, you understand the power of the Word of God, you understand the power of the age to come, you've got all that knowledge, see, but you're taking inventory, where are you? Are you have you repented? If this has all been in your experience, but you're still on the fringe, and that's illustrated by, you know, it's just very basic stuff that you understand. And, and that explains a lot sometimes about our experiences with people. You know, we can see them in the church for a long time. I had this experience growing up too. People who, who really were, looked like they were part of the church. They did the things they were supposed to do and said the things they were supposed to say. Then you find out they're not in the church. They're living like the world. And they have no desire to go back and just wonder, what happened? Well, this happened. They, were never, they never repented to begin with. They were, in that, they were in that circle that they knew all this stuff and they understood it all. But they haven't come to faith. And their life, you know, just, you can examine yourself. You can see, what's the pattern of your life? How do you live? You know, when you have a chance to, to reject the world, do you? Are, do? are you embracing the world? Do you love the world? Do you dress like the world? Do you do what the world does? See, these, these are all things that you can, you can have a pretty good idea. Look at verse 6. Right into this, this very important part. He says, so if you're there and you know the basics, and we saw from, from Paul's passage, just knowing the basics, you know, this is it's not good enough. And we saw early in, in Hebrews, you know, if we need to move past the basics. I couldn't go any further, Paul said, because you, you couldn't understand it. You were still fleshly. Verse 6 says this, and then have fallen away. So you've tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they actually crucified to themselves the Son of God and put them to open shame. So they've never come to faith, they've never come to repentance, and it's impossible then to get them back. Why? If you take that inventory, 
and you fail that test, if you reject when you have full understanding, then it's impossible to be saved because there isn't any more information after that. See, And that fringe position is a very precarious place to be when you understand and you, you being disobedient and worldly and you won't embrace Jesus Christ authentically, you don't filter your life, you, you, won't, uh, you just kind of know the basic stuff, but your life pretty much reflects what the world does. And maybe on a small level, maybe not everybody knows, but this is how you are. The writer says those to those in the church, it's impossible to bring you to repentance. You're an apostate. That's the word. That's an Old Testament word, and it just means lawless. Now mark this, beloved, and we saw this last week. A person who practices lawlessness, an apostate, is not a person who rejects the truth because he doesn't understand it. An apostate is someone who rejects the truth because he does understand it. That was the whole point as Jesus talked to people. Remember when he said that, um, he said, many will say to me in that last day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not, you know, do all these miracles in your name? And he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, they understood all the process. They had Jesus' name down pat. They understood what they were supposed to do in the church. It was all very, very clear to them, and yet they didn't get to go. And what about when they were walking along, and one of his disciples said, Lord, why aren't many being saved? And he said, what? What, they were, what were they experiencing? They were experiencing people who had seen Jesus' miracles and heard Jesus' teachings, and they knew it was powerful, and they knew he taught like someone, uh, not like men, but somebody with authority, and they saw him generate food from nothing, and they ate it, and they saw the power, and people were who they'd known since they were babies who were, who were blind or deaf or lame, and Jesus comes along and he heals them. They know this is real, and then they go back and live their own lives. And the apostle said, a disciple says, so why aren't many being saved? Well, what does he say? Strive to enter through the narrow gate. How do you get in through the narrow gate? You have to repent. See, just knowing Jesus' power and knowing the basics about his life and what he can do and seeing its, its, its actual physical presence in somebody else's life is not enough. You can be in the church and know all the right words, and you might not be doing uh, anything that people like automatically flag. But this is the danger here, beloved. And as we said before, you know, if, if, uh, if nobody was ever deceived, we wouldn't have to have passages that say, don't be deceived. If everybody who, was, who thought they were saved were saved, then why would we have to go through this? And yet Paul specifically comes to the church where he ministered and planted the church and says, I think you need to take a test. You want me to. I think it's you. And see if you're in the faith. Apostate is just somebody who rejects it because he does understand it. That's an apostate. You've fallen away. We saw last time those who practice lawlessness, Matthew 7, 22, those are evildoers, Luke 13, 27. Both those groups know the right names for Jesus. They know what should be done in the church. They know the ministries of the church. They've just played the game on the fringe, and they were never born again to begin with, and they know this. That's the reason for the writing, to prick the conscience that may be seared, to prick the conscience that's, that is calloused. Recognize this. The writer of Hebrews takes the inventory and warns them of the dangers and the dangerous place that they're in. And, and beloved, just as a footnote, there are really only two kinds of people in the church. Long term, I mean. I mean, people come and go and they go here and there or whatever. But in the church, there are just two kinds of people. There are the people who have believed and are authentic Christians, and there are people who have not believed but understand to one degree or another, and they're the ones being referred to here. And this second group is where most of the trouble comes from, actually, in the church, that second group. 
And Paul is asking the Corinthians to take inventory. Which group are they in? If they're in the second group, then they're in serious danger. Why? The writer tells us because if they fall away, they can't be renewed again to repentance because there's no new information that can be added to entice them. They fall away having full understanding but never coming to repentance and redemption. You probably had this experience when someone was in the church and you just thought they were, they were always a believer and now they're not living like one and you go to talk to them and nothing can entice them to return. Nothing. And you see, even in very high positions, and we've seen it in worship leaders over, over the last several years, they just resign automatically. They've written all these songs, they said all the right things, they did all the right things, and every, for, all, for all appearances, we're the real deal, and now they're not, and I, I reject the whole thing. Well, guess what? You never embraced it. You just did the thing. You made your money, you, you got your fame, you did whatever, you know, you felt good while you were doing it. All kinds of reasons, but the fact of the matter is, if they were just on the fringe. And then we get to this very telling illustration of the two types of soils. And, and this is where it really comes home. Very similar to Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed. And these are the two groups that are illustrated. We see it in verse 7. Look there. For ground, for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whom's sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. So the rain is the gospel. The rain is biblical teaching. That's the whole illustration here and it comes often in the church like rain and it hits the ground and it and up comes the appropriate vegetation it's the good soil it's it's drinking in the rain it's useful it's beneficial to others in the church it's the fruit of righteousness these are true believers and according to our passage eventually you can tell because of the fruit that gets bore that's not surprising to us we see that over and over again in the in the gospels because these people were blessed with salvation, which is God's richest blessing, you can see this significant fruit in their life. Now look at verse 8 and see the difference. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. Mark it. The same rain falls on them. But what soil does it land on and what does it yield? Well, it doesn't fall on good soil, does it? The gospel, the faithful teaching, and the calling to repentance and self-evaluation falls on bad soil. And you can't tell that at first. You can't tell which is which, but then you see the fruit. What does it yield? Thorns and thistles. Sometimes they break from the church, and now the thorns and thistles are obvious. But while they were there, you didn't really know, did you? Because sometimes it's hidden. They like how they feel. They want to be around the church. It makes them feel better about themselves. There's all kinds of reasons why people come. Just being on the fringe and having all that information, see, and then you fall away, that nothing can entice you back because it, you never wanted to do it to begin with. This takes up the soil and causes damage to the church. And then it says, mark it, and close to being cursed. They're right there in the church. They're doing church things. It's hard to tell what's going on until you start seeing the fruit. And then it will be the fruit of worldly things causing damage, and gossip, and slander, and immorality, and, and all of that. They're in the church the whole time, producing the wrong kind of fruit. Right there in the church, they're right on the edge of being cursed. And they may have more time to repent, who knows? They certainly have this moment. They're in so much danger, what might be likely because of the danger ends up being what? Burned. 
That's hell. Same rain, two kinds of soil. The gospel comes, it comes to the church, it comes with clarity. You know, we're not talking about people who have to struggle with sin and then they repent and they're they desire very much not to be displeasing to the Lord, and maybe you have to repent thousands of times about different things. You know, you're coming to the Lord, you, you hate how you feel, you don't want to displease Him, and you're, lo- beloved, you're longing for a day that you have a glorified body, and you'll never, ever sin against the Lord again. And we're not talking about those people, we're talking about those, those people have the right understanding. You're not sin-free in this unglorified body, you struggle with the flesh. Not, that's not who we're talking about here, Okay? pattern of life is repentance. The pattern of life is loving the Lord. The pattern of life is serving Him. The pattern of life is giving up your life to find it. See, we're not talking about those kinds of people. See, we're talking about this different kind of soil. And so those, those, the good soil, they come in after a, a hard week. They've been in the Word each day themselves, and they come in, and they look forward to being ministered by, the word of, by people and from the Word of God, and it washes them, and it cleanses them, and it helps them grow and put on the right kind of fruit and the right kind of, of plants come up. See, but when the gospel comes to this different kind of soil, and it comes with clarity, teaching for repentance, and instruction, and sanctification, it accomplishes those things in the first group, and the fruit becomes apparent, and it doesn't accomplish those things in the second group, and there isn't any fruit like that. And those who are, who are believing people, those who've come to Christ, and committed their life to Him, and are authentic Christians, the rain falls on them, and it just produces all kinds of fruitfulness and blessing from God. See, and it's a blessing to everybody else around them. And there are those people who understand, and they know the truth, and they can tell you the stories, and they know the language, and, and this has been my fear all along in the ministry, that we have Sunday schools, and vacation Bible schools, and camp, and, and, and our kids can tell us every single story, and relate it perfectly, and have no idea why any of them are included in the Bible, and what they should have learned from them, see? That's what you want to avoid. The knowledge of all that stuff, without the transforming power that has to be part of those stories. They know all of that, see, they come in, they understand the truth, they can tell you all the stories, they know the language, but they've resisted the process, they haven't repented, and they won't submit to the authority of the word. This is precisely the people Jesus was talking to in uh, Matthew and in Luke. They may even like Jesus, but beloved, it's a Jesus of their own creation, not the Jesus of the Bible. Worshiping the Jesus that, you know, doesn't care how I live. Listen, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And not showing fruit of repentance, you're not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. You're just worshiping somebody you wish that was how Jesus was. And you could eventually tell, and of course, if it's you, you know it right now, that all comes, all the things that come out of your life are just thorns and thistles, absolutely worthless things, end up being burned, even though you can talk to talk and walk to walk and you look like you're in, you're not. And the writer speaks to the church, and after this real clear example of bad soil, verse 9, he says, look there, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Do you see what he says? There's another group. They're the real deal. And I know this is a downer for you because I'm writing this letter to you, and I'm talking about those who are on the fringe, and that might make you feel badly, but I'm We're convinced better things concerning you. Although we're warning you and them of this dangerous place, we know that's not where you are. That's the whole emphasis. The fruit there, things that accompany salvation. That's what it says in verse 10. For God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. See, that's the fruit. That's fruit of repentance. 
That's godliness. That's the Lord working its way out through you. Verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That's the whole idea from 2 Peter where if you add to your faith these kinds of things, the, the pathway to your eternal destiny will be clear to you. Everybody else can see it, and you can see it too. When you walk kind of one foot in the world and one foot in church, and you feel badly about it, but you, you know, you're back and forth, it makes salvation questionable, doesn't it? You always question, am I really saved? I mean, but then you look back at what your activity's been. You haven't been in the Word. You haven't been in church, whatever. And then you, you realize, I've put the doubts in my own mind. I am the Lord's, and I don't want to live like this anymore, see? And so he says, listen, Show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you'll not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's talking to that group, see? This is what happens with authentic salvation. Actions that show love to God are those of obedience to his word. If you love me, you'll do what I say. Over and over. You can say you love God all you want, and you can sing with Alex and sing the songs about God. Listen, you express true love to God when you do what I say. Jesus said that too. If you love me, you will obey my commands. And they're not burdensome. So what's the pattern? You're taking the test. Is that you? You obeying his commands? Faithfully doing what he asks to do? Not perfectly, of course. Can't do it in this fleshly body, but you desire and more and more are doing those kinds of things. Ministry, diligence and labor, Joyfully imitating the faithful who minister around you and, and before you. Not only local church examples, in which you have and leaders who lead well, but the examples from the scriptures of those who ministered in the past and are recorded for us in the scriptures to be examples for what that looks like. And, and there's a lot here, of course, and, and we're, we're uh, moving quite rapidly through this. This would require a book study to, to take this all in and, and parse it all out, but I just want to finish this up with, with a, a couple of chapters further on. Look at Hebrews 10. Will you do that, please? Hebrews chapter 10. We go to verse 19. And, and sadly, this scenario plays itself out in the church today over and over again. The, the writer starts in verse 19, speaking to the authentic believer, and he gives some more tangible evidence of the good soil. And I think you'll, you'll see this is very encouraging to you. He says this, Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great, uh, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean with, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Look at verse 23. We'll go back and look at this in just a second, so hold on. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stop right there. There's some positional truths of the redeemed that are so wonderful here. Confidence in prayer. You may not feel confident all the time in prayer, but you have that as a positional truth. You can boldly approach the throne of God and ask him for things that you never could do before because of Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. You might feel, might feel confident praying, but you can come and the Holy Spirit prays along with you and Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for you. That's always you. That's a positional truth you've got. And, and continually renewed offer to draw even nearer, to come closer, to do it more. That's always a beckoning for you. Come closer, go higher. It's the whole C.S. Lewis thing. Come on in, come further. 
learning what's pleasing to the Lord and doing it. See, that, that's what we desire. That's what he said, uh, uh, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4. And, and you know you're doing this, do it more still. That, that's the fruit. That's, that's positional for the believer. Positional sanctification, practical sanctification, renewing of minds and hearts. When you come, at you, your heart, it says, is sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what's going on in the lives of those in the good soul as the word is taught and read. When the, water, when the water of the Word falls down, it's washing, it's cleaning, it's helping to grow, strengthening, fortifying. See, that's, that's how that works. And that's, that's the experience. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Practical truth again, for he who promised is faithful. The doubts of whether they've been changed grow fewer as they see the fruit of salvation. Isn't that it? The longer you're in the faith and the more you desire to see the fruit the Lord can produce in your life, the less doubt you have about whether you're born again because you can't produce those kinds of things. You know, if you're having this discussion about hard times and difficult things that you're struggling with, guess what? The unredeemed are not having that conversation. And neither are the people on this fringe that's around the outside that haven't come to repentance. They're not having this conversation about, Lord, I've failed you so many times, I'm so sorry. It's only the people who the Lord has put his spirit in who know, and they know they've grieved the Lord and they desire very much that fellowship. That's, that's, that's encouraging to you, see? And then we saw the blessing we saw earlier of the good soil and the mutual accountability. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You know, part of your job and part of the fruit of salvation and repentance is stimulating each other to good deeds. Did you know that? It's the whole Galatians 6.1 again. If you see someone in sin, you're supposed to go to them and you're supposed to address it with them and draw them back from where they are in sin. That's your job. And again, we see it again here. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds coming alongside those who are missing the mark, and, and that's what it means to sin, to miss the mark, and in gentleness seeking to restore them. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And he begins to make this transition to the bad soil again. Uh, those who were in the church but not in Christ, what do they do? Well, they miss a lot of church. That's the habit of some. That's what it says. And, and of course, if you go to that person, they'll say, well, you know... I can have church wherever I want and wherever I am. And I don't need to be in church to be having church. Uh, well, No, not according to that passage. And there are many more like it. And beloved, can I tell you this? Every single epistle in the New Testament is written to a New Testament church. They weren't like doing their own thing. Okay? They had elders, they had, uh, they had accountability, they had places where they met, and, and they gave them instruction. Each one, customized instruction to each of the churches. It wasn't like some independent thing. You can't redefine all of that. Okay? You don't get the, the, the opportunity to say, well, we, we do church, but this is what we do. You know, we go out camping. That's our church. We have church there. Okay? I don't have to be in the church to be, to be in church. No, that, that's not what it says. It says, actually, that the forsaking of your assembly together is the habit of some and you're supposed to encourage one another all the more as you see the day encouraging. Encourage them to do what? To, to be in church. Obviously, that's, that's the whole idea. To be faithful. And I've told my boys many times when they were growing up, I would ask them this question when they were little, and they'll remember this. I would say, when you grow up and uh, you move away from home, of course, when they're little, they, they don't think that's ever going to happen. They don't even want to do, think about that. When you, move, when you grow up and you move away from home, are you going to go to church? And they say, yes, Dad, and, and, now what, and I'll go, why? And I don't want them to say, because you have always gone to church, and we've always gone to church, and that's what you do. I don't want me to be in that equation at all. What I want them to say, and of course, that's what they say initially, because, you know, we've always gone to church, I want to go to church. You always go to church. You're a pastor, I always want to go to church. Why do you want to go to church? 
This is the answer now that they say, I want to worship the Lord. I'm his child. The church is his establishment. I want to be there. I want to encourage the pastor. I want to find a place to work because that's the job I've been given to do. No good thing ever comes from missing church. That's my slogan. Everybody knows this in my family. No good thing ever comes from missing church. No good thing. In fact, when we see that happening, we're supposed to, those who are faithful, those who are godly are supposed to come alongside and say, you shouldn't be missing. You should be here. This is the church taking care of the church. Encouraging one another, stimulating one another to love and good deeds. Love's a verb. Stimulate them to love and good deeds. Have discernment. Be proactive. Now look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, it's interesting, it comes on the back of that little statement about not being in church and all that. That's the transition, that's the transition passage, you can see that. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving, the, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, again he repeats this, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying, verse 27, expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's the same burning we saw earlier with the bad soil. That's the same exact understanding. Bad soil produces thorns and thistles close to being cursed. For whatever reason, attracted to church, you're involved to one degree or another, but you don't belong to Jesus. And you can tell that by the pattern of your life. You love the world, you do the world's things, and it's constantly what's on your mind. If we go on sinning willfully, that's what that means, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, you know everything, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. If you go on living your life your way, that's the pattern. You have the knowledge of the truth, but you won't acknowledge Jesus' right to rule. You won't do what he says. That's the pattern. Then there's nowhere else for you to go. There's no more information. There's nothing else to bring you to repentance. What's left? Verse 27. A terrifying expectation of judgment. And, and of course, if you're on the outside, if you've been in the church long enough, but you haven't repented, you all know, you know this already. You have knowledge of this, of this judgment. But you don't really believe it. Or you haven't thought it through. Or maybe you think it won't apply to you or it won't happen to me. It'll be somebody else. Many of you know I love World War II stuff. Steve Ambrose is one of my favorite authors. And he said for World War II guys, the greatest generation, when they would go on onshore Normandy and they would do these things in Caritan and places, that, that he asked them how they did it and what they would say. Many times they, they talked about their mental uh, understanding of it. They always thought it would be somebody else who wouldn't make it. They always thought they would make it, most of them. They, they, somebody else who would get taken or get shot or, or get wounded, and they would get on. That's how they got on with their lives, the only way they could manage the stress and the difficulty and being under fire. And that, that's the idea, too, I think. Those who are in the church, they know everything, they understand everything, they, but their life is a pattern of wickedness, their life is like the world, it's a pattern like the world. There's this terrifying expectation of judgment, but you haven't thought it through. It's going to happen to somebody else, it won't happen to me. You haven't thought what it would be like for all eternity to be in hell. But that's a reality for a lot of people. And here's what it says. The fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And that's all in capitals. Why? Because that's quoting Isaiah 66. And it's also the passage used again in 2 Thessalonians 1.7 by the Apostle Paul. And both, beloved, are speaking of the actual fires of hell and God's judgment. Both. And some of this group might even say, I'm not God's adversary. I, I like Jesus. I like the church. I like the feeling I get around God's people. But beloved, we're not talking about what you think about God. Obviously, you've got some distorted understanding. 
What did Jesus say to the people who said much the same thing and more? These people who worked in the church, these people who called Jesus by his right name. What did he say to those who didn't come through the narrow gate, those who hung around but were never changed? Those who had lamps but no oil in them. This one we didn't even look at. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. See, you can say I'm not an adversary of God. Listen, that doesn't mean God's not your adversary. God's angry at sin all day long. And peace with God only comes through repentance and faith in Jesus, regardless of what you might think about your relationship to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Beloved, does that give you any idea how bad sin is and in the unrepentant state, the danger that you're in, in trotting underfoot those kinds of things? When he took his own son and made him be sin in your place. Titus 3.7, being justified by his grace, so it's a gift, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You get to be co-heirs with Christ because of grace. So how important is it to be on the outside looking in? That's a dangerous place. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still his enemy, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Guess what? If you're on in that group we're talking about, that second group, the wrath of God is still on you. And whether you feel like it or not, or whether you know that you're in danger or not, or whether you know that you've imposed on God's goodness and you've waited there in the wings doing churchy things, but you've never reigned your life in, and you know whether this is the case or not, you haven't been really right with God through faith relationship in Jesus, and you're still God's enemy, even if you don't think you are. And even if you like the church, and even if you like God's people, with your knowledge, without acting in, on it in faith, you just increase your punishment. Because you had so much light and you never repented. And that's the last point we're going to look at today. And he uses an illustration every Jew would relate to. In verse 28, he says this, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, the Jews are going to snap this up. They understand this. Even Gentiles would understand, basically, that if there's a law and you violate it, and it's a capital offense, and there's witnesses, you're going to pay. But here the Jews understand this pretty clearly. The law of Moses, if you broke certain laws of Moses, that's what it means to set it aside. It just means to, to value it as not important. You're setting aside the law of Moses because it isn't important to you, and you go ahead and do it anyway. When two or three confirmed that you had indeed violated that law, you died. That was, a, that was judgment. Now look how he ties this to some in the church, the very group that we're talking about. Verse 29. How much more severe judge punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. So, let's put this together. How much more important is Jesus than the law of Moses? Infinitely more important. How much more serious is setting aside, active isn't important, the blood of Jesus shed to make peace for you in order to remain stubbornly in your sins? Infinitely more serious. How much more significant is the witness of the Holy Spirit convicting of sin and pointing the way to repentance than two or three human witnesses? Infinitely more significant than that. You see the, what he's saying? You understand the, the, the laws that God had laid down. You understand the laws of men. Listen, how much more serious is it when it's Jesus we're talking about, when we're talking about his blood, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin and has made it clear to you what you need to do and you didn't do it? So the point for the writer, for those in this camp 
If you trampled underfoot the Son of God by not embracing him as Savior, when you heard and understood the gospel, if you've regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant which he shed to sanctify you, if you've insulted the Spirit of grace, that's the Holy Spirit who offered you the gospel, and instead you produce thorns and thistles, how much more severe punishment shall you receive? And then he answers the question, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. And again, quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, which, by the way, is the section of scripture that Jonathan Edwards used in sinners in the hands of an angry God to great effect. The Lord will judge his people then and now. And either, beloved, either get this, his judgment is satisfied in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf through repentance and forgiveness, or it's satisfied on you. And there are no other ways. And that is a terrifying reality. And one of the reasons that that church services shouldn't be made comfortable for the world. You shouldn't be able to come in here unredeemed, just in the world, and thinking this is a really fun service to be in. Listen, people who are comfortable with church but haven't repented are in terrible danger. And that's why he says, and he goes on from here, and we'll stop with this, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he wants them to wake up, as it were, like we saw last time from Romans 13, 11. The time is far past, and the day is at hand. Wake up out of sleep and do the deeds of light. They either need to hear the message again and believe and embrace Christ, which you have the opportunity to do right now, or be so uncomfortable that you leave. Otherwise, they just increase their eternal torment. Why? Because you you break the law that you don't know much about, you're going to be punished in hell. But if you disregard the Son of God and trample underfoot the blood he shed and count as not important the witness of the Holy Spirit, that leads to a terrifying thing. And to come to church and just feel emotional about Jesus, that's a very serious thing. To come to church and listen to the teaching that instructs you to take up your cross and follow it and not do it, that's a very serious thing. And it would be better for you in eternity if you had never heard that than to hear it and not do it. And to come to church and and hear that you need to repent and not do it, that's a very serious thing. To, To be on the outside of the church and just to talk about church things and you're not in the church and to tell people what Jesus thinks and what you should do and what you should do and all that. Listen, that's a very serious thing. You're not following what he says and then you're telling everybody else what to do. And that's the thing that concerns Paul in the passage. And that's why we can't just read, test yourself and see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. We can't just nod at that and go, okay, great, I did. It's not a subjective test. It's objective. And it has very important consequences. And it's everywhere in the church, everywhere. It's here, today. And you don't know if it's that person beside you or, or whoever, you don't know. Maybe you haven't seen that fruit yet, and, and they've, that's just the thorns and thistles, and they're just kind of doing their thing. But they know right now. You're going to do the inventory. And you're going to find out it's possible to fail. And then you have an opportunity right now to reconcile that. Would you bow with me? Lord, we thank you today for a chance to be in your word, to take... Uh, this section, which is just so thorny for us to grab in verse 5, but to make sure that we understand uh, this whole process. What's it look like? What's it look like to be in the church but not in Christ? Really hard to tell the difference at first. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you be free to convict and move in the hearts of people as you would see fit. 
and again, provide them an opportunity for salvation, for it's not your will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of salvation. Now is accepted time. I want to be all who labor and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. It's our desire, Father, just to be, as Paul said, plead with people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. What's that mean? That means you're going to have to repent. No holds barred, no holding on to your life, no, no small room where you get to keep what you want. This is uh, giving up your life to find it. Confessing Jesus as Lord, that means he has the right to call the shots. What he says is true. Everything he said about himself is true. The reason why he came, what he did, and now his resurrection indicate that everything he said about you and for you was for your good is to recognize that. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. He had to go to the cross and take your place because you're not good and neither am I. And you can pray that right now and it doesn't require any special understanding other than what we just talked about. And if you're in that position where you just kind of be in church all your life and you're just kind of doing your thing and, but the fruit of your life, and you know it, the fruit of your life is pretty much just thorns and thistles. But you can talk the talk, and you know the simple stuff, and you put them on your Instagram, and you make sure that people know that you know, you know Jesus died on the cross and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's great. That's great. But Paul says we're going to move past that. And if that's your testimony, just that simple stuff, listen, that's not indicative that you know Christ. In fact, that would be more indicative that you're still in the flesh. When the Word starts making its way out in your life, and it starts raining your life in, and you start taking a look at that, and it filters what you do, and you're, you're uh, grieved when you fail, and you don't want to do it anymore, and you desire very much to have a, uh, somebody, someday to have a body that no longer desires to sin. Listen, that's where you want to be. And you can only get there by repentance. You can only get the new life and the new, uh, the new uh, you by coming in faith, confessing your sins and repenting, and asking the Lord to forgive you and save you. All who call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, will be saved. Call in the name of the Lord, though, that means that everything he said, all that he's instructed you, that's all true, and you agree with it. Do that today. Because if these passages, that second group, describe you, you've been in the church but not in Christ, nobody may know but you. Or it may be obvious to a lot of people. And those passages may be devastating for you, like... Robert E. Lee said, we expect reverses, but we don't want to fall into greater disasters like eternal destruction and fire falling into the hands of an angry God. Call on him today. If you have questions more about that, we'd like to answer those for you. Communicate with us there at the back of your seat. Might help you. Lord, we thank you today for the work that you do. We don't pretend that we do it. We just give your word out. It's powerful and it accomplishes what it's supposed to do. And this book of Hebrews to, written to the church is instructive for us. It was so important that the Holy Spirit have us know that this is, this is the likely situation in every single church that he gave us a whole book about it. And so, Lord, help us to have ears to hear, hearts to respond, and not be stiff-necked, I pray. I pray that we go out today, that we be the kind of believers that reflect you well, that we live our lives before men in such a way that we don't bring dishonor to the gospel. More so, Father, even that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember, our love for you is expressed in our obedience to what you say. And our neighbor is ourself in a contentious world, in a world that's divided. We don't have to be that way. In fact, we can show the love of Christ to those that we interact with. And then to give the gospel to every creature. 
those things were left on the earth to do. Thank you for the kingdom that you're establishing through the hearts of believers. Pray that it will grow and flourish as we obey your commands from your word. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.